You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. I'm Avery Smith, and I'm here to invite you to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. Whatever your own relationship to gender and spirituality may be, you will find yourself enriched by the stories shared by my guests, who so far have ranged in religion from Christian and pagan to Jewish, Sikh, atheist, and beyond, and have hailed from the U.S., Chile, Poland, Australia, and more. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts, or read along with episode transcripts by visiting blessedarethebinarybreakers.com. See you there. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, as always, before we get started, I have to thank my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors, and they are keeping me from selling my own adrenochrome on the streets to fund my crippling content creation addiction. So, for this week, I have to thank Apoptot... Ap- mm, goodness, this name. Apoptotic. Apoptotic. I think it's Apoptotic. <laughs> Wednesday Wretch. Kay Nevermore, Scott Varney, Denam, and Ven Winter. Thank you so much. I truly could not do this show without you. You are sustaining this show, making sure that I can bring it for free to the public every single week. And anyone listening to this, if you enjoy my work, if you look forward to listening to the show every single week, then please consider becoming a patron. For just $1, you get extra content every single week, including my House of Heretics podcast with the former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic, Timothy McPherson. We talk about religion, meditation, politics, media, whatever is in the news that day, and uh, it also helps fund very practical things like when my van breaks down uh your support ensures that i have uh ongoing transportation and you uh cover medical bills for my six cats and so on and so forth so every little bit helps and i truly appreciate it but there are other ways to support the show one of the best ways is to just leave five stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you do leave a short review, I will read it on the show as thanks. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, I'm delighted to welcome Keith Frankish to the show. Keith, how are you? Hello, I'm uh, I'm fine. I'm good. Thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. We are in two very different time zones. You're in Greece. I am on the East Coast. So I'm up earlier than usual. I, I'm normally never alive at this time, but uh, <laughs> but I'm alive for you uh, for this conversation. So you are uh, you are Philip Goff's co-host and 
You Come Highly Recommended by Philip Goff, and I adore Philip Goff. I think he's great. He's been Mm -hmm. on this show twice. And Philip Goff is a proponent of panpsychism. And which is the idea that consciousness is everywhere, to use his phrasing. Consciousness is everywhere. And then he described you as believing that consciousness is nowhere. Mm-hmm. So uh, before we get into it, tell us some about who you are and what you do. Oh, well, thank you, Stephen. Yes, I, I, uh, I, I feel similarly about, about um, Philip. I'm, um, we're great friends, even though our views are rather different. Yes, well, I'm a, I'm a philosopher. I have affiliations with several universities. I'm, my main one is an honorary readership with the University of Sheffield in the UK. But as you said, I, I live in, in Greece uh, and I uh, do some teaching for the University of Crete here. I spend most of my time, though, uh, writing both academic work and more popular uh, philosophy and promoting the, the view that you mentioned there, the, the view that I, that I call, that's come to be called illusionism, which is often described, you'll find that interviews with me uh, tend to appear under the title Consciousness is an Illusion or something like that. That's not exactly what I want to say. I want to say that there's a certain conception of consciousness that a lot of people have, which I think is quite wrong. And I think consciousness in that sense doesn't exist. I think the philosopher's concept of consciousness, if you like, is 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 the concept of something illusory, something that doesn't exist. And what interests me is why people think it does exist when there are such good reasons for thinking that it doesn't. But I don't want to say that when we talk in an everyday sense of having conscious, of having experiences of seeing and hearing, and tasting and feeling pain and so on in an everyday sense, that I don't say those are illusions. I don't say that, I, that we don't feel pain, that we don't see things, that we don't, I'm not, obviously I'm not saying that. I'm saying that our conception of what's happening when you feel pain, when you see things, when you hear things, our conception of that, the, the, the philosophical conception of that is, is very misguided. So one way of expressing that is to say that consciousness is an illusion, but it has to be qualified in the way that I've just done. But I do think that the kind of consciousness that Philip believes in, the kind that he thinks is, is everywhere, that he thinks that electrons have this kind of consciousness. I think that kind of consciousness is illusory. Consciousness that could be possessed by an electron, that's illusory. So I want to get that in at the start because people often suggest, well, uh, I can convince you that consciousness isn't illusory by, by giving you a punch on the nose. I'm curious that they choose that example. They, if, they, they could, if they think that would work and that a punch on the nose would work, then, then I guess um, doing something nice for me would also work. Giving me something very nice to taste would, uh, giving me some chocolates or something would would work as well. Of course that wouldn't work because I don't deny that there is this state that we call pain that we sadly enter all too often and that it's very real and that it's, it's a very unpleasant state and we know when we're in it and we don't like it and we, it's, 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 we don't want people to cause it to us and if we're um, uh, if we're moral people, we don't want it to be caused to, to anyone else. I agree with all that, of course. The question is, what is that state? And are we conceiving of it in the right way? In particular, are philosophers conceiving of it in the right way when they think that there's a really, really, really deep problem about the nature of consciousness? 
Um, so you, it, it sounds like you're working towards rejecting the entire framing of, say, the hard problem of consciousness, that there is even a hard problem. And I understand the hard problem to mean, you know, how is it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, let's see if I can articulate this. The hard problem is how does inanimate material following the laws of physics give quote-unquote give rise to or generate or what have you this ephemeral phenomenological experience of consciousness is that right yes that's pretty that's pretty much it it's of course it's not it's not necessarily inanimate i mean uh, we accept that inanimate matter can be organized in ways that become animate that become living and nowadays it's quite common i it's quite I suppose it's fairly orthodox to suppose that nothing, there's, there's no, no great puzzle about how you can create living things out of inanimate matter. Nature did it. Natural selection did it. You just need to organize inanimate matter in the right way, a very, very, very complex way, so right. that it becomes so, so that, that it becomes capable. animate. So, and, and that doesn't involve it acquiring some magical new property of becoming, you know, some sort of vital essence or vital spirit, as, as people used to believe. It just involves it being organized in such a way that it performs some very, very complex processes, that it maintains its its own, it maintains homeo, homeostasis. It, it regulates, well, first of all, it needs to, you need to organize it in some way that it has a sort of boundary between it and the rest of the world, and that within inside that boundary, it maintains certain parameters, it right. keeps itself sustained. It takes in nutrition. Um, it acts in a way to protect itself and preserve itself. It's able to reproduce. Being alive is a matter of having a system that performs certain functions, maintains itself, regulates its own condition, and reproduces itself. I guess I mean, that's not a, uh, meant to be a, a, a precise definition, but that's the kind of thing. And modern biology is explaining how these processes, how inanimate matter can do those things, how it can be organized in a way to do those things. Okay. And I take it that, you know, this is the relatively uncontroversial. I, I suppose there are some people perhaps who think that life requires some extra spark. I think it's 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 fairly uncontroversial. Um, certainly among scientists and philosophers, I think, to say that life is just a very complex organization of the same materials that, that, that everything else is made of. It's not like... I mean, you have these these old movies where you have Frankenstein or whatever, and where there is something else that's required. You, um, Frank, uh, Frankenstein takes the uh, various parts of a human body, connects them up in the right way, so that it's all, all the organs and everything are there, but it's still missing the vital spark, and so he has to get the the lightning to, to animate it. And there's some extra thing that needs to be to be infused into this inanimate um, uh, body in order to make it live. Well, like the modern view is, you know, you just need to get it all working properly. You just need to get the blood pumping and then and and so Now, that's very much an analogy for how I think about consciousness. Everyone accepts that to be conscious, you need to have a brain working and doing the stuff that brains do. Uh, immense, again, immensely complex stuff. Everyone accepts that, pretty much I think everyone accepts that you need a brain to be conscious. If things happen to your brain, you lose consciousness, damage, disease, and so on. We know that all too well. But a lot of people think there's something more to consciousness than that. It's not just a matter of having 
the brain doing its immensely complex things, those 86 billion interconnected neurons doing what they do. And it's there's something extra to it. There's a sort of extra spark that you could imagine the brain doing all its, all its performing all its functions, but still not being conscious. And so that's where the hard problem comes in. The hard problem is how to explain this extra step, this extra step from the brain doing all the stuff it does to consciousness itself. And it's like supposing that there's an extra step between the body doing all its, performing all its functions and being alive. And I, I deny that. I say that we simply don't, we certainly don't understand everything that the brain is doing by any means, and it'd be a long, long time before we do. Um, and there's no reason, no good reason, to think that there's anything more to it than that. And it's a kind of illusion to think that there's something more to it than that, just as it's an illusion to think that there's something more to life than one's bodily organs doing all the things they do. So in that sense, I deny that there's a hard problem, a problem over and above explaining everything that they, not just the brain itself, but the embodied brain, of course, being conscious, not just a matter of having a brain, but having that brain hooked up to the rest of your body and plugged into the wider world in the right kind of way. But there's no special, there's no sort of hidden extra that needs to be explained. So there isn't really a hard problem. What there is, though, is there's a sort of, there's what I've called the illusion problem. There's why the question of why we think there's a hard problem, why it seems to us that there's something extra. That's the really interesting question, I think. And so the question here is not whether or not we have experiences and thoughts and emotions like those it, we all know that we have this experience of being us and that includes pain and happiness and pleasure and and so on and so forth so you aren't denying the experience of those things but rather what you are contesting is whether those experiences exist above and beyond the physical processes that's 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 pretty that's pretty 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 accurate yes okay yes but the, the danger in bringing in words like experience is that soon for, for many people those words automatically bring in this problematic conception that I, that I want to reject right they think about experience as something that is known in a very special way that is completely private and that is not explained in terms of not explicable in terms of processes in the brain. So they, they, with that very word experience, they bring in a lot of things I want to reject. What I don't deny is that these states that we call experiences, pains and, and, and so on, feelings, uh, seeing things and hearing things and tasting things, those states are real and they are whatever they are. Right. I'm talking about, uh, the, the question is how we think of those states, how we conceptualize them. So it's, it's almost like the, the feeling that we have that through history has given us notions like the soul, the idea, these these feelings that this this deep sense that we have that that we have a conscious self or a soul that is above and beyond our physical processes, and then this feeling through history has given us you know concepts like the soul and and mind body dualism and and so on and so forth. And now today it it gives us, we, we still have that feeling. We still have this sense that our consciousness is almost a mystical thing, a mystical property that is above and beyond or detached from physical processes in the brain. That's, 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 that's very good. Uh, yes. I think what's happened is, yes, for a lot of, of many centuries, certainly in the Western tradition, people thought that the, the mind consciousness was a separate thing 
a non-physical thing that was somehow associated with the physical body or soul uh, and that could survive the death of the physical body. Now, in the 20th century, that view became harder and harder to maintain in the face of a growing understanding of the intimate connections between what happens in the brain and what happens in the mind. We know all too well that damage to the, the brain affects the mind. In some conditions, sadly, people can lose much of their personality, their memory, their abilities, while still alive. So the mind can go before death if the brain uh, ceases to function properly. So it became increasingly implausible to hold that the mind was something separate from the brain. But still, people couldn't give up this idea that it's not can't be just the brain, because <laughs> there seems to be this private inner world that seems quite separate from the, the rest of the of, 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 of the public world, the world out there. Well, I sort of exist here behind my eyes in this private world where all everything is, it's almost, to use a metaphor that Daniel Dennett uses, it's almost like a private theater where, where the world is displayed for me privately in here. And this is the world of my experience. And this is the world where I can dream and hallucinate maybe uh, and have my own private world of experience. And it's still, and it seemed to people that, okay, science is telling us that that isn't really a separate world, separate, there isn't really some two things here, my, my body, my brain, and my soul. But still it seemed it couldn't just be the brain. The brain must be somehow producing some extra, extra properties, extra, an extra aspect, an extra dimension that wasn't fully accounted for in terms of what the brain was doing, uh, in terms of the, the processes the brain was was um, uh, executing. So, what? So this is a form of what's called property dualism, rather than substance dualism. Rather than saying that there's, there are two separate things here, we say that there's one thing, the brain, but it, it's kind of doing two things. One hand, it's doing all, performing all the functions that neuroscientists investigate, and uh, uh, that, that um, are not that deeply complex, but not especially mysterious. And then somehow it's also producing this this sense, this, 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 this private inner world. But it's still the brain that's producing it. It's not, they're not two things. And still, uh, when the brain ceases to function, this private world will be switched off. But, but yeah. it's, so it's, it were, people gave up substance dualism, but they couldn't really give up the whole, all of the dualism. They couldn't just say it's just the brain performing the functions that it performs. There's still something extra being produced there. And so now they talk about the brain producing consciousness, giving rise to consciousness, somehow consciousness emerging from the brain. So we still have this dualistic talk, even though we're not supposing that there's a soul. So as I see this, this is a, this is a hangover from that more robust dualist tradition. People haven't fully accepted the implications of giving up belief in the soul. So let me see if I can articulate this. So instead of, what was the term you just used? Phys, uh, 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 something dualism to describe property the brain. Property dualism. Property dualism. substance dualism. Versus substance dualism. Okay, so property dualism being the idea that there is the, 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 the functions of the brain and all of those electrons are, you know, connecting and singing to each other and keeping your heart beating and, you know, working memory and all of that stuff. But then all of that complexity 
is quote unquote giving rise to this emer to this to this ghost to this hologram that kind of floats mm. above the thing almost it, it, it it's like yes, a, it's like a yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Go I like on. the idea of a hologram. It's like a projector. This is the problem. How to think about this relation now? Yeah. People can't give up the idea that there is this private world, but now they, they don't want to say it belongs to a separate thing, the soul that it just is somehow associated with the body. It's 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 still somehow holograms a nice idea. It's, is, it, is it a sort of projection? Yeah, yeah. Of the brain somehow, or another view, which is closer to the one to, to Philip's view, is that this uh this this other aspect is, is somehow the the intrinsic nature of the brain so the idea is the brain is doing all these things do, performing all these functions that all, have all these that uh, effects on our um uh, maintaining our, our um, uh, 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 all kinds of regulatory functions functions and controlling behavior and so on but it also has an inner aspect to it there's what it's like for the brain itself intrinsically so it's so one way you can think of it as something like a projection the other is you can think of it as the internal inner nature of all of that and of course once you think of it in that way then it becomes open to say to go down the the, the panpsychist route and say maybe everything has this inner nature to it right maybe even an electron scientists uh, uh, physicists can tell us what an electron does how it interacts with other particles but what about what's it really like to be an electron? What's the electron itself like in itself? And so the idea, this, this is one way to fit this extra uh, aspect of ourselves into the world is to suppose that everything in the world has an inner aspect like this. And our inner aspect is what we call consciousness. The uh, electron's inner aspect is, is another kind of consciousness, a much simpler one. But they're all accepting this intuition that there is something more there that there is a soul very very complex processes yeah something that needs to be fitted into the rest of the world and what you're arguing is that that is not the case that there that there's nothing added there isn't the hologram and there isn't that base reality in the brain of consciousness it's neither yes instead you're saying there's just the brain and and these emergent what we experience as emergent properties or what we experience as conscious I, I okay so the the word experience you objected to the word experience a moment ago <laughs> the the, cautioned, the cautioned. <laughs> you cautioned against it okay so uh have you know having pain having thoughts having feelings all of that stuff is simply the it is the brain. Is that what you would say? It, it is just, there. there is no added level. So I guess the question becomes, why do we have this additional experience? Exactly. Okay. Why, why does it seem so, why does this picture seem so compelling to us, this picture of the yes. private inner world? Why, if, if, I'm, if I'm right, why does it seem that I'm wrong? Why, does every, why is it so tempting to think in these dualistic terms? Hmm. Good. And so there are two parts to what I, what I try to do. One is to make the, ne the negative case against that dualistic view, because I think there are all sorts of problems with it. And one problem with it is finding anything for consciousness to do. Because if it's like some sort of projection or if it's like the interior aspect of all of this, what difference is it making? 
Okay, if all our behavior is explicable in terms of what the brain does, what's this extra element doing? It's like saying that, you know, again, that there's a vital force in living things. What does that do? What does that explain? We can explain the, everything that living things do. We can explain reproduction and digestion and all the characteristics of, of um, respiration and all the characteristics of living things in terms of biological processes. We don't need this vital spirit to do anything. Why do we need a, a sort of a vital consciousness? Uh, not, uh, why do we need a consciousness spirit to do anything? So part of my what I do is make the negative case against that view, which I think explains the main case against it, I think, is that it explains nothing, except all it does is justify these intuitions we have. The other part is then to say, well, so but why do we have these intuitions? Why does it seem so compelling to think that there is a, an intangible private world in here that is radically separate from the rest of the world, that you you may know a lot about me, you may study me, you may study my brain. If you're a neuroscientist, you might map everything that's happening in my brain, you might study my behavior, you might study my psychology, you might study my psychological um, uh, states. But still, the thought is, you never actually penetrate into this private inner world of mine, this private world of experience, or know what it's like for me to experience the world, because that is a kind of different realm, different world. Only I can see the hologram, as it were. All you can see are the things that are producing the hologram. Okay. Now, so I need to explain why that picture seems so compelling. And, I, and that is the constructive side of the project. And in a, just in a few words, the idea is that I, what's happening when we have experience and when we have conscious experiences is, first of all, that we have, we have sensory systems that are sensitive to the world, sensitive to various features of the world. And these sensory systems produce all kinds of reactions in us, uh, from very basic physiological reactions, changes in hormone levels, that sort of thing, through all kinds of psychological reactions. They trigger memories, associations, uh, emotions, they produce beliefs, uh, desires, all sorts of, they have all kinds of psychological effects on us. And they have behavioral effects as well, of course, if, you, if, you, if you're in pain, you, you, you cry out and so on. So they have a whole range of effects from the very basic hormones right through to, to uh, overt effects on behavior. And the idea is that we also, as well as all that, we have systems that monitor our own reactions, that monitor how and model how we are reacting to the world. And so if I say, if I'm uh, injured, my pain receptors are stimulated, signals travel to my brain, all kinds of reactions occur. Um, again, from the stress hormones, uh, I have a strong desire for whatever's happened to, 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 to stop. I maybe uh, uh, I feel um, anger, fear, whatever, memories and things. Uh, uh, I believe that I'm in, in distress. I might be anxiety maybe cause all sorts of things happen. And I also have systems that register that and register how, not just, I don't just react to the world, but I also have systems that register how I'm reacting to the world. Okay. And that enables me to report on how I'm reacting to the world. So I can tell you that this has happened to me and I'm aware that it's having some effects on me, a whole range of effects, which I, in, in the case of pain, I don't like. And so I, I can say to you, look, I'm in that state again where you know, when something damages you and all this stuff happens to you and you have all these raft of effects, but I can't really describe them in detail because I don't have 
that kind of information. This modeling, this self-monitoring is of a very coarse grain type. It doesn't present me with all the details of what's happening. It just says, you're in that state again, that state where something bad's happened to you and you reacting in these, all this range of ways with this general overall shape. And so I can say to you, look, I'm in that state again that happens when I get injured and it's, I don't like it and it's, it's, do, it's doing stuff to me. I, I can't really describe it, but I, I don't like it. I want it to stop. Um, it's, I feel distressed. I, I, I'm, I'm not happy and so on. And we've coined a word for that, pain. Right. And what happens then though, is we say, ah, oh, pain, right. And that's a word for our way of characterizing the complex state that we enter when uh, we are when our bodies are disturbed or damaged, uh, and what it's actually referring to, what we're using it to track, are the complex physiological, psychological, behavioral reactions that bodily damage causes in us. But because we don't, we're not aware of all the detail of this. We're just aware that there's this overall global pattern of reactions in me, which we've coined the word pain to describe, we tend to think that we're talking about something singular and unified and it's with a distinct identity all of its own that is more than just the reactions. It's the pain. And now we say, now we start to get into a problem. We've sort of turned this term for describing a complex of reactions into a thing in itself that somehow needs explaining over and above the reaction. Over and above, right. Okay, so, and just listening to you talk, I think as I explore what it's like to be me, nowhere in sight is my brain. If I just go off of my experience on its face, right? There's, and I think, and, and that in the same way, so if I'm just sitting here, contemplating what it is like to be me i have no sense of my spleen i have no sense of my kidney i have no sense of my intestines right and and all of these parts of me are incredibly alien to me and same with the brain there's mm-hmm. there's no sense of neurons there's no sense of of i, I would have no idea that i had a brain that this yep. consciousness uh, is or or this this whatever it is this experience uh, is uh, is <laughs> right right and and there's that experiential break in our realities right. that severing in our realities would you do you do you think that that is what also causes this this intuition that that we have a consciousness above and beyond physical processes because when just the sheer fact of the matter is that when we think about what it means to be us when we think about what it means to be human nowhere on display is the brain absolutely okay i absolutely agree and i think that is a a major part of the explanation for the intuition of of dualism, and but there's a there's a very natural explanation for that, and I, I suggest that we have self-monitoring, self-modeling systems. I guess I'm tempted to think that we have these because we're social creatures. We don't just react to things. We don't just see things, hear things, feel things. We also share information about the things we're seeing and hearing and feeling. 
and we share information about how they affect us. We say that's that doesn't taste nice. Don't don't do that. Or that will hurt. Or that's nice. Try that. We can share information. And this this is a hugely important aspect of human life. We don't have to wait and try things to find out what they're like. We can tell each other in advance. We can take precautions. We can seek out things that other people have told us are nice. We can avoid things other people have told us are nasty. This is a, this is a hugely important um, aspect of human life. And so I think evolution has equipped us with systems. We're talking this loose way about systems with, 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 with systems for monitoring how things affect us. We don't just undergo reactions to the world. We also monitor our own reactions so that we can report them to other people. But we don't need to know all the details of, of how things, we don't need to know that it's causing activity, that this, um, the, the, the damage to my, stubbing my toe, for instance, is causing uh, activity in a such and such a brain region. We don't need to know that when I see, see something uh, 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 beautiful, that, it's, that there's activity in certain regions of my visual cortex. We don't need to know all these some grisly neuroscientific details. We just need to know what it, what it, how it affects us. Is it nice? Is it nasty? Does it, is it like something else that we experienced? How, does it, is, it, is it something you want to recommend, something you want to tell people to avoid? How does it relate in very abstract terms to other kinds of experiences and to, certain, and to other behaviors? Okay, so we just have this abstract notion of pain as just this bad thing, this, this, this horrible thing, this awful thing. Now, what we're actually tracking there is a hugely complex reactive state that is uh, that exists because of what the brain is doing. But we don't need to know all those details. Hmm. We just need to know it's that state that you want to avoid, right? That one. Now, and it's precisely because we have such l so little information about the nature of the state that we tend to think that the state isn't uh, isn't a brain state, isn't a reactive state, isn't even physical at all. All we know is it's that thing that we don't like. So it's that nature has given us a very simplified conception of our own inner life, inner here being in quite a literal sense of what's happening inside us, of, of you know, our own physiological, psychological, behavioral state. It's allowed us to track that, but it's given us such a simplified, schematic sense of it that we tend to think that it isn't even a physiological state or a psychological state or, uh, at all. Hmm. It's something extra. Right. So it's the limitations of our own self-conception that lead us to thinking that there's an extra world. Right. And, you know, you, you keep referring to the boundary between mm. their, the inner life, yep. this, this feeling that you have a sense of self that is behind your eyes, usually yep. behind your face, and uh, accompanying that is all your inner thoughts and emotions. But then we have this feeling of the outer world. We have the tactile sensation on our skin. We have the visual field, we have sound, etc. And so I'm a meditator. I, I meditate with Sam Harris. And one of the things that is really interesting 
while practicing some forms of meditation is how that barrier breaks down. Uh, and, and you can actually, like, if you pay close enough attention, you can actually experience the boundary between your inner, that, that realizing that the inner world of thoughts and feelings and emotions, and then the, the quote-unquote outer world of v- stimuli, visual stimuli, <laughs> tactile sensation, auditory experience, uh, olfactory experience, that that boundary is actually false that is an illusion and that all of these things are actually taking place in in the same undefined sphere it, it is mm-hmm. I'm, and it's all i'm using all metaphorical language here mm-hmm. because it's hard to capture but there is the realization you know if you in meditation paying close enough attention to that experience of inner and outer Mm-hmm. Uh, if we do that, then we realize that there is no inner and outer. There is just there. There is just this undefined state. Does does that make sense? Am, am I? Am really I? Yes. I wish I knew more about meditation uh, to be able to engage with that in a really um, uh, 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 sophisticated way. But let me let me just say this: I I do want to talk about an inner world, but it's. Mm spatially inner world it's the world of what's happening inside our bodies right our right brains. right right. and this is inner in a so so you mean it sense. so you mean it in a literal sense not in a literal not sense. in an experiential sense we are our our, our our brains our sensory systems are tracking features of the world around around us and features of ourselves so you are defined right so you mean it in a in a very literal Lit- way whereas what i was just ex- describing is experiential they're they're tracking the world around us and the world inside us, literally inside us, right? Okay, right. through processes of interoception, which are tracking states of our bodies, processes of introspection, I think, which are tracking states of our brains. Okay, so we are bra- <laughs> our brains. We aren't our brains. We are our embo- we are in- brains embodied in in our bodies and uh, in our um, environment. But let's let's say our brains. Our brains are tracking the world out there, and they're tracking the world in here. That the, the, the the, the the part of the world out there that is inside my my skin, if you like, okay, and that creates the sense of there being a dualism because we're tracking outer stuff and inner stuff. But actually, it's all part. In the end, it's all part of the same reality. Tracking what's happening in me isn't tracking something that is distinct, ontologically, metaphysically distinct from what's out there. It's just a complex part of what's out there that is sort of located here and is tracking itself. Yes. Okay. So there really isn't a sharp boundary between the inner and the outer. There's just a complex world, a part of which is tracking both the world around it and itself. But it, th- 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 there's no sharp ontological separation between the inner and the outer. It's 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 all it's all one. So in that sense, that's that 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 agrees with what you were saying about the dissolution of this boundary. And I, I think what we have as, when we talk about we, who, who's we here in all of this? Because we're talking about brains, we're talking about bodies, we're, we're, but I'm also talking about what we think, what we, who, who's we here? Well, essentially, I think we is, as it were, the public relations department of all of this. I am the kind of story I tell you. I can tap all kinds of information about what's happening around me and what's happening inside me. And I can put this into 
a communicable form. I can say, I'm seeing this. I'm seeing something over there. And, uh, and then I can tell you how I'm feeling about what I'm seeing out there the other day. It's frightening me or it's, it's pleasant, it's tempting me or I'm tasting this and it's, it's really nice. And, it and I can talk about how the, what I'm tasting, I can say this, 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 I can say this tastes of, uh, of coffee um, and I can say whether I like the that coffee taste. And so I can talk about this interplay between the properties of the thing there and the, and the reactions it's creating in me. And where was I going with this? Um, so we, we are the, as it were, the, the storyteller who, I, I'm coming up with all these statements about how things, how things are, are, are affecting me what I'm detecting up there and how it's affecting me. And I am just the sort of the locus of all these, of all these interactions with the world. Okay. And so I put it in terms of, I am experiencing this. I am reacting in this way. And so on. it's, it's, it arises from the communicative function of all of this. Okay. Uh, you could just, you could say, I am just the, 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 uh, the, 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 the organism, the, the, the person, the, the animate body. And so on. that's one sense, but we also use it to express the character of the interaction that this body is having with the world. Right. And this seems to be something more internal because after all the reaction, it's something that I, I can, I again can directly report to you. I can say the coffee tastes bad. Okay. Well, that's directly reporting on an interaction, which as you say, I don't, I don't need to know that it's grounded in, 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 in sensory systems in my, in my brain. I don't need to know what exactly it is that I'm detecting in the coffee. It's just an interaction between the reporter here, me, <laughs> and the coffee. So I say, I don't like it. That, again, that I isn't, isn't it's, it's a way of expressing the interaction rather than a label for something inside right. that is experiencing and at, uh, the interaction, if you like. And at no point in that process does this mystical additional property appear. So it's almost like... You don't need Occam, it. Occam's razor. You, there's no, yeah. no, necess, no, no additional unnecessary entities um, Absolutely. in that process. Yeah. Okay, so that, make, that makes complete sense. And the thought is that if you spelled out in enough detail, I mean, I've just been just, I've been talking about self-monitoring systems and interactions, and I've been just, and communication, I've been talking in extremely uh, schematic, uh, sketchy ways. Not surprisingly, I'm talking about a system that is 86 billion neurons that we only have that the the, the 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 crudest understanding of at the moment but the thought is if we could tell that story in enough detail about the nature of the interaction and what's going off and how um the nature of its own self-awareness the nature of its own self-monitoring and how that results in uh, uh, uh our beliefs and intuitions and uh, uh things that we want to share with each other if we could tell all that story in enough detail we'd see that there was just the idea that there needed to be something else as well as all of that would just drop out just as once we see we understand um, the process the biological processes uh, 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 in in a living organism right down to the cellular level the subcellular level the way that the cells are specialized and organized into organs and the organs connect up and we talk, tell all of that story in enough detail about the developmental side of it and the genetic side of it and, i mean it's just an amazingly complex story but once you've told all that story if, if we could there's no need for any 
extra vital spirit, extra essence of life beyond all of that. In a way, the, 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 the notion of a vital spirit is just a sort of shorthand for our ignorance. Yeah, it's a God the and a gap. Yeah, and yes, yes. And I, that's how I think of the philosopher's concept of consciousness. It's just a label for our ignorance of the complexity that's really going on. That, now, you might say, well, okay, well, that's okay. We're, we're, we're ignorant. Yeah, we have a label for it. Fine. Yes, that's okay. As long as you recognize that that's what it is. What, where it becomes dangerous and leads you down a, a, a dead end is when you start to think that it isn't just a label for our lack of knowledge of something. It's actually a label for our positive knowledge of something mysterious. Right. Which then needs to be accommodated within our view of reality. And you start wondering how the brain produces it and whether electrons have it and how we can be sure other people have it and do fish have it or not. And you think of it as an inner light that is mysterious and private and and you start doing a lot of philosophy of it and ways frankly wasting a lot of time <laughs> uh, trying to theorize about something that is merely a lack of knowledge right right so philip goff talks about especially at the end of his book he talks about how he believes that panpsychism and and for the uninitiated listening panpsychism again is the belief that consciousness is a fundamental feature of reality mm-hmm. and he says that that panpsychism might help people cultivate a greater sense of being at home in the universe and that maybe mm-hmm. we would treat nature better maybe you know he says well if the rainforest is teeming with consciousness i think was the phrase he used mm-hmm. uh then maybe we would treat it differently and maybe we would not be in the environmental catastrophe that we're in mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. uh and so he really believes that or, or or suggests that there might be some real life tangible consequences and positive Mm -hmm. consequences and how we treat other people and how we treat the planet Mm -hmm. and how we feel we might fit in. Um, How might illusionism affect how we interact with others? So if, if Mm. how might this tangibly impact how we treat other human beings and ourselves? Yes. Yes. A great question. Um, Well, I think, I think it has positive, uh, uh, effect properly understood when it's properly understood I, I should say I, I think I don't think we should judge views simply on their on their I don't think we should judge views by their ethical consequences because it could be that the truth is horrible it's not, it's not horrible I mean, <laughs> yeah it so, could I mean, be that the truth is terrifying <laughs> it would be nicer to believe in life after death I, right I'd like to believe in that but I, I, I'd kind of been deceiving myself if I did. So I don't think we should just, we should say if a view is unpleasant, we should, we should reject it just for that. Though we should be much more cautious about it. Mm. Because if a view is going to have a, a, a dangerous consequences, then we should be much more careful about asserting it. And we should make sure we're, we're really, really confident of its truth before we, 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 um, um, we go about promoting it. But I think in the case of illusionism, I think I see the, the, implications as, as really benign and actually not so different from the ones Philip sees. Look at it like this. If you think of consciousness as this radically private inner world that is not, that is somehow separate from, in some way separate from, from, from the public world. So only I really, 
I can, I can experience my consciousness. I know it's like, but no one else can. No one can see the hologram but me. Now, this puts a barrier between us. After all, consciousness is supposed to be the most important thing. The nature of our consciousness is supposed to be the most important thing. What it's like for me, what it's like for you, what it's like for other creatures. This is supposed to be the most important thing. The most morally significant feature of our existence is what it's like for us, I guess. Well, at least one of them. Uh, a very important one, anyway. Now, if we suppose that that's radically private and inaccessible, then we can never really know the most important, uh, um, this, this very important ethical fact about, about other creatures. We can never even be sure that they have this inner life. Mm. I've been asked, are fish conscious? And what they're, in, what they're asking there, I think often is, is there this private inner world inside a fish's, <laughs> behind a fish's eyes, as it were? The eyes look rather dead and cold. Does it have this private inner world uh, behind them? Are, are, the, are the lights on inside? And the thing is, there's nothing we can do to, 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 to answer that question. We can map its brain processes. We can compare, that, ask whether it has similar sorts of brain, how similar its brains are to ours. And we, could, we can maybe hypothesize that certain features in our brains are important for consciousness and ask whether the fish have those processes. But we can never be sure precisely because there's a hard problem in relating brain processes to this private world of consciousness. We can never bridge that gap. So we can never be sure that any other creature has this. And so it radically privatizes consciousness, privatizes um, th this locus of ethical significance. And it means we can never really know what it's like to be a fish, what it's like to be a bat, or even really what it's like to be another person. Now, I reject that view. I don't think there is anything radically private in that way. I think what there is, what, 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 there is, is uh, what we have up organisms reacting to the world in massively complex ways, ways that it's very difficult for us to, to, to map and to, 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 to describe, but which are not in principle hidden from us. If we studied the fish carefully enough, studied in, uh, in uh, exhaustive detail, what effects different stimuli have on it, not just on it, how it moves and behaves, but on what happens inside it, on its physiology, on its psychology, um, on its reactions at the finest grained level, then we would know what impact, uh, 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 we would know whether it's in pain, we would know what it's like to be the fish, because talking about pain is just a very sketchy way of talking about the impact that things make on it, what make on an organism. Mm. So what this does is it removes the barriers between us. And it didn't, instead of saying, oh, I can't know what that, what that person feels, it's just it's a mystery what's going on. No, the reason you don't know, you, you can't, you don't know is because you haven't studied carefully enough. And I think we can, I think we can see the truth of this. I think if you think about a, a relationship you have with someone very close to you and how if you've lived with someone for a long time, observed them, not just as a scientist, but just as someone who, who shares the same um, space with them, you begin to understand how, what the world is like for them, how things affect them, how they react, not just on a sort of overt level, what makes them angry, what makes them so. You understand how things affect them psychologically. You understand what's happening inside them, as it were. Mm. Uh, you understand what memories that's, that, that's conjuring up, what associations, what fears, what... Um, doubts and so on. You, you begin. You, you know that certain stimuli will 
create this pattern of effects and you begin to know what it's like to be them. And illusionism offers the hope of knowing each other and knowing the the rest of the of the of the animal world. So I think it, it's it, it's an encouragement to pay more attention to each mm. other and to the rest of the animal world. Because if there's this fundamentally mysterious kind of ghost in the machine, yeah. well then that is ultimately alienating between yes, people because then that means that we can never access the ghost in the other yes. machines, the, the ghosts yeah. in the other machines. And no, that, that, that makes sense. And, you know, when I was reading And it that, also, I think, t- sorry. I, no, 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 go on, go on, go on. I, I, the, the other side is that it also tends to inflate our own sense of our own importance because mm. we are not just complex bits of the living world, like trees and things that we don't think of as being conscious. I know waterfalls and trees and the environment generally. We have this special spark inside us, right? Uh, that makes you know the, the, the lights are on inside, and that makes us more important. And now that you know, we certainly are more. We certainly react in a much more complex way to the world. But it doesn't. We're not meta. I don't think we're metaphysically sort of different from waterfalls and trees and and other things that we don't think of as having in this inner light. Okay, and so I I see this view as rooting as as both encouraging empathy and to some extent uh, deflating egoism yeah yeah uh, and encouraging a view of us as being just very complex bits of the world yeah and and you know one of the things that i found myself thinking while reading the end of philip's book and i like his mm-hmm. book and i encourage mm-hmm. everyone to read it um it, it's a fantastic book um mm-hmm. but this sense of alienation from the universe because we have this conscious self and the rest of the universe does not feel conscious. It, it does not. It, the, the rest of the universe feels dead in comparison to our consciousness. And therefore, there is this innate sense of homelessness yes. um, and, and alienation. And I'm like, well, isn't this all just a matter of framing? Isn't this sense mm-hmm. of alienation just a matter of framing? Because... The universe, we co- we came from the universe. We are the universe. We are, it, it, I, 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 it's like Douglas Adams saying, we are like the the puddle that, this, I forget the exact metaphor, yeah, but, know, you know, we are perfectly fitted to the universe in the same way the, the puddle is perfectly fitted to, well, the reason is because the the universe is what, what gives us our shape, our form, yes. our our chemistry, all of that. We are yeah. the universe. We are of the universe and we are the universe. And so isn't this sense of alienation just a matter of framing? And and so if we see ourselves as, as these fundamentally spiritual beings and the universe is fundamentally material and dead, well then, yeah, we'll probably feel some alienation or we could frame it in the opposite direction we could frame it as we are we the the universe is our home we we evolved in this universe through natural through through natural selection and and so on and so forth and so isn't this feeling of alienation just a matter of framing yeah and that Uh, that's that was the thought that i found myself having while reading that passage Uh, that's 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 a perspective that's very congenial to me uh, and i think to the to the way that i've been um, that I look at this, and another thing that that this does is in 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 removing the the, the mysterious extra. <laughs> I think it focuses our attention back on the wondrous. Uh, what do I want to say? The, 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 in supposing that there's something non-physical in addition to all 
the 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 the, the, the wondrous physical complexity. It it tends to diminish our sense of the wonder of that physical complexity. Uh, it's like, oh, well, of course, the brain is doing marvelous things and wonderful and so on and so on. But that's not really the story. The story is this extra thing that comes in and somehow the brain produces. And that's where the wonder and the mystery really lies. No, the wonder and the mystery lies in what the brain has been shaped to do by uh, hundreds of thousands of years, hundreds of, hundreds of millions, I want to say billions even, uh, of years of natural selection. Yes, which has shaped it to do wondrous things. What's wondrous about the brain is not that it produces some special source that you know, some extra. It's that it does wondrous things, and that's what's one. That, it's it's a and similarly with, with life. Life is is wondrous, and the, by supposing that there's a hard problem here is is locating all the the wonder in the wrong place. It's uh, it's. There's this common example of Mary, the scientist who's studied vision, uh, but has never oh, experienced black and, color black and white Mary. Black and white Mary. She's studied color vision, the neuroscience of color vision, but she's never actually experienced um, color herself. She's she's lived in a black and white environment, but she knows everything about the, the, the neuroscience of vision. Now, the idea is that she's cut off from the essence of vision, because she's never actually experienced it. Well, I think, in a way, no, she's, she is, if you take seriously the idea that she really understands how vision works, color vision works, she, she's, she's, she, she understands the, mis- the, the wonder of it better than anyone. Uh, sure, she's not been out in the world and learned to communicate about it in the way that, 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 that the rest of us have to learn to apply these concepts to her own, but she knows the wonder and, uh, of, 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 of color vision better than anyone. We, you know, it's it's a I'm searching for words to say, but it's 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 one of the frustrations I guess I feel with with a lot of I suppose religious discourse is that it kind of locates the source of value and meaning in the wrong place. It puts it in some extra mundane out of this world and out of ourselves. No, we bring the value. We bring the wonder. Yes, uh, and we also bring the we bring the you know heaven and we also bring the hell as well. We don't need to externalize it. It's in us and in our interactions, and that's where we need to work on it. Instead of, hmm. uh, you know, putting it in some in some in some in some uh, uh, external realm. Um, As my friend Shiva Honey says, "You are the magic." Yes, it's, yes, you yes. are. You are the magic, and um, yes. yeah. For listeners of my show, will will know who who and what I'm talking about. Um, so, in the last, is, sorry, go on. I'm sorry. This is one thing that I should say that there's some. I don't want to. I don't want to get personal about anyone, but I'm often sort of labelled a physicalist, and I would accept that, that label. But it's often seen as a as a pejorative label, as if physicalists are people who want to take all the, the meaning and uh, and wonder out of the world and just reduce everything to mechanisms and uh, say that nobody really feels anything and nothing really means anything, and it's all just a dead mechanical world. Couldn't disagree with that perspective more. I Agreed. think, yep. and t- t- I think some physicalists do do materialists do 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 tend to project that picture, that image a little bit, and and and, and that, that I don't I, they, they bother me because I think that the, there's so much wonder and magic, real magic, yes, not, not made up magic, you know, that we've invented because we don't really know the explanation. There's real magic happening. Um, we don't, you know, uh, uh, and when we can understand it, if we study hard enough, 
consciousness is real all right yes. and it's and it's wonderful and magical but it's not something uh, uh that's set apart in a distinct in a distinct it's not it's not, it's not we don't need, we need it's not another kind of thing it's just a very complex kind of we need to look at the compl the complexity is where the magic is you know i've been um reading some stephen pinker lately and he mm -hmm. talks about you know how how language works in the brain and and all of this stuff and just just reading his analyses of language and how language works in the human brain and just being in absolute awe of that process it is mm -hmm. it is the closest thing to real magic that i've ever experienced mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. is real contact with the real world and these real mm -hmm. processes it is the closest thing to real magic uh and, and, and still real only scratching wonder. the surface absolutely we're still only scratching the surface imagine what it's going to be like when you know in a couple of hundred years when we have a much deeper understanding of these things absolutely before we wrap up, do you have any questions for me? Well, uh, I, I don't, I, I, I confess, I haven't been following your podcast very much, so I don't know the, the things you talk about. But you did mention uh, that you describe yourself as, a, as a, a Satanist. That's right. And at first I was a little, uh, I thought, what's that mean? And then I had a look at the, at the website of the, um, of the uh, Satanic Temple. Satanic Temple. And I, and I looked and I thought, well, you know, this seems... This, it all seemed very congenial. Yes. Am I am I a Satanist? Um, and, and so it really actually seemed seemed so. It's it seemed like a, I guess a lot of it seemed like a form of humanism, but with perhaps with a, a sort of more punky edge or yes. more rebellious edge to it. Uh, yeah, um, absolutely. So I just wondered. Uh, I can, uh, and so I, I I just wondered why. It seems that it's 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 a sort of somewhat aggressive description of what seems a really actually very compassionate and uh, humane worldview. So I just wondered why why you is it is it to just to is it just a, a reaction against oppression and authority and the idea that a bit like Milton's Satan who is uh, uh, rebelling against the the dictatorship of God is that the idea that it's it's an yes. expression of 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 uh, resistance to authority. Yeah, well, and and the key phrase is undue authority. So not all authority is bad, right? Not all right. not all authority is abusive. So it has no problem with authority necessarily. Or my Satanism doesn't necessarily have a problem with authority. It's undue authority, and so right. it, and you know, it. I think a lot of it also has to do with. So, so people very often have a negative reaction to the name Satan, and it, as you just said, it feels very aggressive, and it feels. I don't feel that, <laughs> and so I, I sometimes wonder if, like, so, so I see the imagery of Satanism. I see the imagery of the Baphomet, which is our our uh, statue that we put that that the Satanic Temple puts on government property as a counterpoint to the Ten Commandments to right. express genuine pluralism. And I just see 
Uh, I just see it as uh, beautiful. I see it mm-hmm. as lovely, and and I don't have that same reaction. And so I, I wonder. There are times when I really wonder if, like, my disgust response is just not like non-existent. Um, and and so, but I hear that that reaction and that disgust from a lot of people. For me, it's really rooted in my experience of being queer mm-hmm. and my experience of being an outsider in right. the church right. and so this this deep association with the outsider and i think part of the reason right. why it is fundamentally uncomfortable is because the outsider is almost always uncomfortable yes, yes. you know and and so the the same feeling that we have towards the name satan is very oft is you know through history the same feeling that people have had towards minorities yes, and so yes. it's actually kind of a very tangible connection with the implications of being an outsider and yes. and part of the point for me is oh that feeling of disgust is actually very misleading that's part of it the you know the moving from disgust to humanity as a necessary process and the the initial the initial disgust or or shock that we might feel at the outsider and satan is the ultimate outsider that's the same shock and disgust that we feel towards all outsiders and the one for me personally one of the points of satanism is to realize oh that emotion is unreliable And so Satanism is a meta commentary on that whole process that that Satan is a, you know, our Satan, uh, you know, the the Satan of the Satanic Temple is, first of all, a a metaphorical figure. We don't literally believe in him, but um, which is very important that people grasp. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) but the 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 discussion. The, the 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 shock or the disgust or the kind of wincing away, that's how we have responded to uh, the outsiders throughout history. And and so Satanism, I feel like it, it can't be cozy while also advocating for the outsider because the the very act of advocating for the outsider is deeply uncomfortable. I, I, I do like that. I think you, you've articulated that very in a very eloquent way, and I, I, I do. I mean, after all, religion, formal religion, has been used to define uh, nationalities and ethnicities, and so it's you know it's used to, to def- it's, it's, it's a way of defining them and us, and it's it's been motivated motivated conflict and war and exclusion and the authorities that have controlled it have, as you say, manipulated people's feelings of disgust and so on through exactly. through, through imagery and propaganda to 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 represent the the other the, uh, yes. uh, the people who are outside the uh, the, uh, the ethnic uh, boundary but as 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 disgusting so that makes a lot of sense to me yes i like that i do and and you know the church invented satanism the the church the catholic church and, and i was uh talking with joseph laycock who's a, a religious scholar and he he wrote the book on the satanic temple uh mm-hmm. called speak of the devil and so i was having him on the show and he was and he's catholic <laughs> and he's but he's very supportive of the temple and he's us uh, as a new religious movement, and and I was like, so do you, 
so you're Catholic. Like, how do you deal with this? And he was like, well, you know, the Catholic Church invented Satanism in in the Middle Ages. You know, the Catholic Church invented the concept of Satanism. So it's almost like I'm checking in on my kids, making sure my kids are doing well. But he's right. The, 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 the Church created the concept of Satanism as a weapon against mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. mostly— uh, Jewish people, yes, yes, and against Christian heretics. They yes, worshipped yes, Satan. Yes, they yes, and yes. they did unspeakably awful things to the Eucharist and so on. And um, and so there's this long process of of attribution slowly turning into identification, and yes, that yes. has been my personal process. So I'm gay. And I went through exorcisms in the church, and I was told continually that I uh, that there was something fundamentally demonic about me, and um, and so it and so the the sense of being an outsider is very deeply connected to who I am as a person, and so it mm-hmm. and what I have come to find is that now there is actually quite there's quite a bit to embrace there. There yes. there's actually quite a bit of empowerment. In uh, in standing in solidarity with the outsider and kind of in, which of course yep. was what the founder of Christianity did I mean, he, exactly um, was uh, so maybe he was maybe the, he would have identified more with with your I uh, like to think that he would absolutely he was certainly he, well he was a uh, he uh, he was accused of hanging around with low life types and not following the dietary laws and generally being a disreputable sort who didn't didn't conform so yep. and of course the other name for satan of course is lucifer which means the light bringer the, the light bringer which is yeah and and so i personally connect that to um to the to enlightenment values to mm-hmm. science to inquiry Mm -hmm. to asking questions to questioning everything to genuine skepticism and and so i i i tie that into the scientific method to and so on and so forth so if the orthodox view of consciousness is the is the one that's rooted somehow in dualism can we then suggest that the the satanist alternate the delusionism is the satanist's position on consciousness. So so fortunately <laughs> so so you know uh, in a in a kind of basic sense all satanist means is someone who reveres the symbol of satan. So that's a very very broad definition. So I know satanists who are theistic, there are say the majority of satanists will be non-theistic, but I know many satanists who take the view that you take. And so I've had conversations with uh, they, my my friend Penamu says that Satanism is a carnal religion, and he doesn't mean that in terms of kinky sex, mm. but he he means that in terms of it is a religion of the body. It is yes. a it is Absolutely. a it is a religion of the body, and and a, first and foremost, being concerned with matters of the physical and the body, and seeing all things taking place on this plane of existence on the material plane and so there are, and, and then consciousness what we experience as consciousness would also be carnal in that way so um, that's 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 where it all matters that's yep yep it's 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 not in some 
I some strange metaphysical realm that consciousness consciousness is 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 here in our interaction with the world and things impinging on us and us exactly you know, reacting to them. I, I this. It's, I like to use a metaphor, something like a bell that we are like bells and the world is striking us and we're making these, we're reverberating with them. And that's where the action is in this, inter, in this interaction between us and the rest of the world. And that's uh, where our ethical concerns are too. And so Absolutely. I, I personally like to think of, so, so a longtime symbol of Satanism you'll see on my neck. I have the, the pentagram here. And mm-hmm. um, so the pentagram, the, the the traditional pentagram, the the f- fifth point is mm-hmm. pointed up. Yeah, you can just right. barely see it on there. There's mm-hmm. there are the five points of the pentagram, um, but traditionally that that point is pointing up, and mm-hmm. I take that to mean that our cons- the that the concern is spiritual. It is up. It right. is it is up to the metaphysical. It, it is towards the ethereal and the metaphysical. Mm-hmm. But Satanists invert that. Okay. And to me, that that represents the concern with the material, and that our ethical concerns, first and foremost, are grounded in the material and and in material conditions, and and the, the how we treat our neighbor here and now in yep. in the material, and it it is about the the material here and now, and not about the hereafter. Absolutely, no. I- so, you've been very eloquent and I, you know, I, 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 I guess my, my sort of background was kind of watching Hammer horror movies in the, in the yes, 1970s. I love Hammer horror. <laughs> I adore <laughs> Hammer horror. Uh, um, but uh, I, 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 I like this. It's, uh, it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense. What, I mean, there, there, as you say, there are strong traditions, but certainly within Christianity of, of speaking up for the, of the outsider and identifying with the outsider and it's it's so ironic that the institution of religion has 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 you know created its own class of outsiders that it can't empathize with precisely because it's defined them as without without its outside itself outside grace yeah exactly yeah, so exactly well i don't want to take up any more of your time but well, this it's been has a pleasure uh, talking to you this has been great and uh, i've really enjoyed it for people Me too. who want to discover more of your work where can they do that do you have a, a website online that yes. they can go to yes my, the, there's a lot of stuff on my website it's just my name um keith frankish k-e-i-t-h f-r-a-n-k-i-s-h all as one word dot com perfect and i'm also on twitter i'm quite active on twitter so you, you can find me there and Very i good. talk about philosophy and also about various other uh a bit of silliness as well beautiful all right. Well, it has been great, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Me too. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it. Well, that is it for this show. The theme song is Wild by Eleven D Seven. You can find it on Apple Music or Spotify or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long. It is supported by my patrons, and it is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. 